In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we St. Luke, St. John, St. Maximilian Colby, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. I have promised you another talk um, on the three foods, but uh, since we're in Lourdes, I thought it would be more appropriate to speak about Mary, and it would be very good to get a bit of the biblical root the biblical roots of Mary, and to walk through a few passages with you on who she is. Um, Our Lady is already prefigured in Genesis chapter 3. There is the famous passage of the sin of Adam and Eve, and after the sin of Adam and Eve, when all is falling into despair, when man is being cut off from his relationship with God, he turns to the woman and he makes a promise. And it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it's called the Proto-Evangelium. And it's a nice term to memorize. Proto, meaning first Evangelium, gospel. It's the first announce of the gospel. That God doesn't uh, ever leave us without hope. He doesn't ever leave us in a state where we are just abject and rejected and thrown out of the garden, thrown out of paradise. He says to the woman that uh, her seed will crush the head of the devil. But not only that, he says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And her seed will crush the head of the devil. In the Latin Vulgate, um, and perhaps in some of the original Hebrew texts, it also referred to the woman crushing the head of the serpent. But... It's really interesting that from the very beginning, God is going to put enmity, meaning uh, separation, polar opposites, opposite sides of the spectrum, at war with one another. Enmity between the serpent, the devil, and the woman. It's very beautiful because we're going to see immediately a prefiguration of Our Lady It's her son that will crush the head of the evil one. And it's also really beautiful because sin entered the world through a woman. It was Eve that ate first. And the victory, faith, hope, and love will enter first through a woman. In order to repair the state that's Uh, was broken. 
And so right from the very beginning, we find a prefiguration of Mary in Eve, and we find a woman who uh, will play an essential role in our salvation, that she will be put at odds with the devil. It's interesting that, you know, in that movie, The Passion, which I mentioned already, they portrayed Mary always on the opposite side of wherever the devil was. When Jesus is on the way of the cross, Mary was on one side and the devil is on the other. She is always opposed to the evil one. And any good exorcist would know that one should always call upon the Blessed Virgin Mary to help and to protect. But we find a lot of things uh, in Scripture, especially, of course, in the New Testament, about Our Lady. Throughout the Old Testament, there's plenty of prefigurations of Our Lady. I mentioned a little bit in the homily yesterday about her, just the beginning. But already... What we find, too, in that aspect of enmity between Our Lady and the devil, we find a prefiguration of the Immaculate Conception, that she is juxtaposed to the devil. Enmity. In Hebrew, the word is even stronger in the opposition between the two, between the one who is source of sin and the one who is the source of our salvation. Mary, her yes brought about Jesus Christ. And so we find that in order to be at enmity with the devil, she has to be pure. Because the devil is the impure one. The devil being directly opposed to her. We also find in the Old Testament such beautiful things as For example, uh, the queen, the queen of David, was always his mother. It was always the mother that took on the role of queenship and not the wife. But moving forward, one of the first passages, hold on, you've got to sneeze. Um, We'll see if it comes, if I actually sneeze or not. Um, one of the first passages is good to look at to discover what is the Immaculate Conception would be uh, in Luke, the famous passage of uh, the Annunciation. See, I speak about it and someone else triggers. Um, And it doesn't come to me. (laughs) Um, So with Luke, we find with the Annunciation also that Our Lady is this chosen one that will bring about the um, coming of our Lord. I mentioned it to you a few times, so we can go rather quickly, but we have that famous part where the angel appears and saying, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. In the beginning of the rosary. And with this beginning... He's immediately recognizing that she is full of grace, full of God's gifts, full of God. And already in the words of the angel, how could she be full of grace if there's sin in her? Like we saw in Isaiah, when it says, a virgin shall conceive, 
how can she be a virgin if she's not also a virgin of soul, the virginity of heart, in the, in the fact that she was without sin. So to hear full of grace implies the purity of heart, the capacity to receive grace, to receive God. The Lord is with thee. The Lord comes to dwell. The whole aspect about this preparation in her heart, the Immaculate One, the preparation in her heart so that the Lord might dwell in her. Blessed are you among all women, recognizing, recognizing her place in salvation history. Remember yesterday when I mentioned about how the Father's often would say that God searches for quality, not quantity, and that all the quantity of the earth is worth it for the quality of this one soul, for the quality of the soul of Mary. That's something that's beautiful. And you see it throughout the church that um, the entire church is often saved by the quality of one saint, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much we are troubled, it's the quality of the soul, the quality of the love of one saint, uh, Mother Teresa, that turns the church back and brings the church back to holiness. This quality of Mary's soul makes it all worth it. And blessed are you, Mary. Blessed are you among all women. And it's something to never forget because very often in the media today, we are put before the quantity of problems. And we can lose focus on the quality of soul, on the quality of our own soul, and the quality of the, of the, of the soul being what God is searching for. Not the quantity. And so he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for thou hast found grace with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Immediately reassuring Mary, assuring her that she has found favor with the Lord. And it's true that finding favor means that the Lord has looked upon her that the Lord has turned his eyes towards her, that he has turned his hand towards her. How shall this happen since I do not know a man? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will be her spouse. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. And remember how yesterday we mentioned that this whole aspect about being the spouse of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, how, does, how is she so capable of receiving the Spirit that the Immaculate Conception, when he, she says in Lourdes, I am the Immaculate Conception, it talks about her very existence, the way that she exists before God. And here, when we see that she is spouse of the Holy Spirit, we find this great sensitivity, this great openness, to whatever the Spirit does. And the power from on high shall overshadow her. 
And in that, don't we find something that is an essential aspect of holiness? An essential aspect of the Christian life when we're looking to live of the Spirit, all the work of purity of heart, all the work of uh, remaining open, the childlikeness that Mary has when she asks, how shall this happen since I do not know a man? No man. The childlikeness, the almost uh, simplicity of asking what came to her heart. How can this be? How can this be since I am a virgin, since I do not know a man? The simplicity of the regard of Mary, too, makes her entirely open. Unlike Zachariah, Zachariah doubts immediately. Mary, she does not doubt. She simply wonders. And the state of wonder also leads Mary to be entirely open. That it wasn't just the purity of being without sin. Purity also means, um, in its activity, wonder. St. Thomas Aquinas will oppose impurity to intelligence, above all. And um, the purity of heart is often associated with the gift of intelligence, the gift of understanding, the gift from the Holy Spirit that enlightens our minds so that we're able to perceive what God really means. What is God really meaning? And there's a link because impurity lowers our eyes into the dirt or into earthly things. Purity allows our mind to be free to contemplate the things of God. And so with Mary, when we speak about the Immaculate Conception, we'll speak about this purity of heart that wonders, that is amazed about everything around her, that's intelligent also, highly intelligent. We say that Mary, because of her purity, because of the Immaculate Conception, was certainly the most intelligent human person in history. Um, Jesus is not a human person. He is a divine person. That's a good theological distinction. He doesn't count, therefore, because he's God. <laughs> so he's like in another category. So if you want to compare another human person with her, you compare maybe Joseph. It might be a better comparison. Um, Mary would be the greatest human person to have ever lived, by far. The model for Christian life, by far. And this openness of her intelligence where she wonders about things and where she's entirely sensitive to what God wants. So how can this be? so that I might do what God wants. She already knows that God has asked her to be a virgin. She already consecrated herself when she was four years old, in case you didn't know. We celebrate September, not September, November 22nd, the feast every year of Mary's 21st, sorry. Uh, the November 21st, Mary's presentation in the temple. Not Jesus's, Mary's. And what happened in the presentation in the temple? She consecrated herself as a virgin, as a liturgical feast in the church. 
She knew that she was to be a virgin, and it's thought that Joseph knew also and agreed to marry her in that, in that state. And so she knew that she was to be a virgin. She knew that God had called her. So how was she to have a child? And it's interesting that her immaculate conception gave, allowed her to be so pure and respond to God that it was through her virginity that she's going to bear fruit, that she's going to be a mother. It's interesting. It's through her virginity and through her purity that she's going to be mother. And so we're going to find two things in the Annunciation. She's the model of sisters and religious, and she's the model of motherhood. She's both at the same time. And it's through this purity of heart that she bears fruit and that she has the child. And how? The Holy Spirit descends upon her. And her response, as you may have heard me say, she does not say, yes, I'll do it. Because if she said that, that would be hubris, be this uh, capacity for mankind to say, I'll do it. I can do it. I can save mankind. Um, Or she did not say, I cannot do it. Because that would also be false humility. Both would have been pride. Saying, God cannot work in me. So instead, the wording is perfect. It's the very first moment of Christian grace. It's the very first moment where Christ's grace comes into a human soul. And what does she say? She says, behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done to me according to thy word. Is where the word fiat often comes from. Why we use the word fiat so much is not for the car. It's for the words in Latin, let it be done unto me. Let it be done unto me. Let it be done unto me according to thy word, Mary said. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. And so... The very first moment in Christian history was when Mary passes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And when Mary passes from the grace of the Old Covenant to the grace of the New Covenant. And it's this moment. And it happens by Mary saying, I will obey. I will listen. I will obey what God wants. I will follow. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. And it's great because it's not shrinking God's plan to my plan. If she had said, I will do it, it would have been her doing it. And she would be shrinking God's plan to her mind. And not being open to whatever God would do, right? And if she would have said the opposite, I can't do it because I am not worthy. She says, in other times she'll say that she is unworthy and, you know, her humble servant. She doesn't say unworthy. She says humble servant. She says things that are similar. She recognizes her littleness 
But she doesn't say that she's unworthy, actually. Because it's God's choice. If God says to you, I love you, I want to give you my heart and my life, it's not for you to say, no, because I'm unworthy. But it is for you to rejoice because God has loved you in your humble state. Yes, it is for you to rejoice. It's not that I'm worthy either. It's not that I'm worthy. It's not that I'm unworthy. It's that God has seen me in my unworthiness, quote unquote, in my humbleness, and he has loved me there and elevated me there. And if anyone was worthy, Our Lady certainly was. But even if she is immaculate, without sin, it means that naturally she is a, the best of the human persons. You know? But that doesn't mean that she's worthy of receiving God. Just because I'm human doesn't, just because, doesn't mean I'm infinite. Just because I'm human, it means I'm finite, still does not make me worthy of the infinite, no matter what. And Mary recognizes, surely she didn't recognize that she is immaculately conceived at this point. She would have to sit back and look at herself. I'm sure if she looked at herself, she would realize she didn't have any sin. But she probably never stopped to look at herself. I doubt that she sat there taking her temperature, saying, am I... Am I immaculately conceived? Am I, am I not? I doubt she started doing that. Um, but if she's going to appear at Lourdes and say it, it's because God wanted her to. Because God wanted a new, well, not new, it's old, but a new development in what we've always known. Because remember that doctrine always grows from the seed never leaves what was originally there. A new development of what was always known. And so he developed. And this immaculate conception really allowed for Mary to be able to be this pure vessel to receive his grace. She realizes that she is unworthy because she is unworthy, even if she's immaculately conceived. No... Even if she hasn't made a mistake, she's still finite. She, just because she's not sinned does not make her worthy of receiving the infinite. It makes her worthy of receiving happiness. It makes her worthy of receiving goodness. It makes her receive, worthy of receiving God's love and tenderness. But the word made flesh is more than all that. It's receiving God himself. It's receiving the infinite one. That's why uh, the Jews initially picked up the stones and wanted to kill Jesus because of this. Because God made flesh within the womb of Mary. And that, uh, that didn't make sense. That didn't make sense. God came to give us a natural happiness. And so for her, she had to be entirely open. And she had to say, let it be done unto me according to thy word. For God's plans were far greater than she had ever imagined. 
And it moves forward with a visitation where she reaches out to her cousin and the leaping of John the Baptist in her womb, how he leapt in her womb. There's some other passages that are really important. And see, yeah. Let's go on to that passage I mentioned, the wedding of Cana. Because if you're looking at the very beginning points of Christianity, we now know that we are called to bear fruit through our virginity, through our purity. All Christians are called to that purity of heart and the offering of all that we are. And in that purity of heart, the fight against sin, we bear fruit. And we also know, I didn't bring that up, that because of her immaculate conception, but also for us, um, we then carry the word made flesh with inside of us. We also know that. That's the whole sense of the Eucharist, right? Why do we receive the Eucharist? So that we could be like Mary. Why do we, how are we like Mary? We also carry Jesus now within us. We also carry Jesus now within us. That we become tabernacles, like Mary was a tabernacle. It's often said, in our congregation at least, that Jesus gave the Eucharist for Mary. Because when he was ascending into heaven, it broke her heart again that he was leaving her. And so he sent his Eucharist to dwell with her. To dwell with her. And so the whole finality of the Eucharist is so that it might, Jesus might dwell within us. At the wedding feast of Cana, we discover a further point. And... I mentioned that Mary was entirely attentive. She's the one that notices that there is something wrong, that they have no wine. She's the one that is awake and attentive. But there's still more. The words that Jesus will say, she'll say they have no wine. And notice, too, that they're at a wedding feast. And there's only two real names that are mentioned, that of Jesus and Mary. And Jesus is going to respond to her woman. And already that, that woman is going to be very important because it's going to be this evoking of the new Eve. How she is the woman. Later on, John is going to say that he is the man. The ecce homo, behold the man at the cross. Here, woman, what is this to do with you and me? That's a very strange statement. And it's saying... In the wedding of Cana, Mary, or woman, we have entered into this plan. And what does this you do with you and me? I, essentially, I cannot give them the wine that you're asking for. For my hour has not yet come. Woman, what does this to do with you and me? I cannot give them the wine that you're asking for. For my hour has not yet come. When is his hour? The crucifixion, right. And his hour, he's going to refer to it throughout the Gospel of St. John as the hour. He's saying, Mary, I cannot give them the wine that they're asking for, or that you're asking for, because my crucifixion has not yet come. 
my passion has not yet come. He's saying that the true wine is my blood. The true wine is my blood. And I cannot give them that right now. So what's interesting, though, is he says, woman, what is this to do with you and me? And it already means that Mary has a role in giving of the blood. That she is the woman that participates in the offering of the blood. She's the one that's going to introduce them to the new wine, the wine of the new covenant. And this new wine is going to be better than the old wine. This new wine is going to be better than that of the old covenant. This new wine, which is the grace that comes from the wounded side of Christ, from his sacred heart, this grace is going to be much greater than that of the old wine. So much so that in John chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, he's going to say, he has given us grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. For in the old, he gave us the law. And now he gives us grace through Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Mary is going to be associated in that. That Mary is going to be partaking in this. So much so that we would say that she becomes a mediatrix, which is a term that we use a lot now. Um, She is a mediatrix. How? Mediatrix is just the feminine of mediator. Scripture says there's only one mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. But here, she mediates. She goes up and she says, uh, they have no wine. She mediates. She also advocates. So she is the advocate, the mediator, advocate. In Rudabach, in the Miraculous Medal, you're going to actually see that Rudabach, on the Miraculous Medal, Mary is standing like this. And light is flowing forth from her hands. And she's actually going to say that many of the graces that are given are given and lost because no one asks. And no one asks for the graces. Many of the graces that flow forth from Christ, they flow through the heart of Mary. It's interesting because at the very beginning, in the Annunciation, Jesus chose to come into the world with Mary. Now, he's choosing to get started in his apostolic life with Mary. And he even talks about his cross. And he says he's going to give everyone the wine in cooperating with Mary. It's like Mary has a role at every part. When he dies... She's going to have a role. At the Pentecost, she's going to be there. She's there throughout. And then when she reveals herself at Rudabach with her hands outstretched and with light flowing through her hands, we see that she becomes also a mediator. It's not that revolutionary, really, because Scripture says that famous quote which is written out there when we walked in, it's, 
Let he who thirsts come to me and drink, for from his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And so, stand up real quick. I'll pray just here. Come, come on over. Come on over. So, imagine she's Jesus, okay? And I come to her to drink of grace, okay? And now I have my heart full, okay? And from my heart now flows rivers of living water to the next. If we understand that scripture passage, she being Jesus, me being the one who is drinking from the heart of Jesus, it flows. That means she's the true mediator, if she was Jesus. I am now a mediator because grace has now flown through my heart to others. But when scripture says that Jesus is the one true mediator, scripture says that that he is the one true mediator is because my mediation comes from him. He's the one true mediator. Similarly, Scripture is going to say we have one Father, and that is our Father in heaven. We have one Master, but that doesn't mean that you don't call anyone Father. It means that He is the true Father, and we all participate in His fatherhood. He is the true Advocate. Jesus says that, I, uh, that He is the first Advocate. He sends us another advocate, which is called the Holy Spirit. And we are all advocates when we pray for someone else. And we ask that God may intervene. But it's important to grasp that mediation is not a revolutionary idea. And to say that Mary is the mediatrix is not a revolutionary idea. In fact, we say... All Christian grace came through Mary. And it's true if you just read scripture. Because Christ came through Mary. (laughs) Christ came through Mary's fiat. Mary saying yes to the Lord. So it's not revolutionary. So she is mediatrix of all grace as Christ is. Christ chose to come in the world through Mary, and he still does. He still chooses to come through Mary. She is advocate. But there's also one last term that is very important to grasp. She is co-redemptrix. And this too is not revolutionary when you think about it. It's something that the Protestants often have trouble with. All this, but this one is a very strong one. Um, Co-redemptrix is also very important because notice Jesus says to her, um, woman, what is this to do with you and me? He doesn't say, woman, why are you bothering me? It sounds like it's rude right away. (laughs) He says, woman, what is this to do with you and me? He calls her woman, first of all, to associate her with him. He doesn't call her mother. Even in Jewish times, to call your mother woman is rude. It doesn't, it's not like it was different in their language. It was like if I call my mother woman. <laughs> it's about the same. It's like weird. It's not normal. So it stands out. If you, look, if you read through the exegets, most exegets would say it wasn't normal 
It wasn't normal for him to say that. He said woman to her for a purpose. And that purpose was to associate her into the mystery of his redemption. Associate her into the mystery of his plan. He also calls her woman to evoke the aspect of the new Eve, which was very explicit in the, in the New Testament and all the saints that followed. You know the first person to write about the new Eve was? St. Irenaeus, who was the disciple of John, disciple of the disciple of John. It's right away, right away in Christian history, they started explicitly writing about Mary as the new Eve. And here it's very, very, very strongly written in John, her role. It says, woman, what is this to do with you and me? Mary, we can't do the redemption that you're asking for until the cross is there. And then at the cross, he's going to allow her to participate in the redemption. Especially when you say that she stood at the foot of the cross. She received the water and the blood. She received him in the moment of the pieta. She uh, had a sword pierce her heart too. You know, it wasn't, remember the prophecy wasn't just that he would be crucified. It was that she would have a sword that would pierce her heart too. There's so many different little points that all come together to say that she played a role in the redemption. When I was talking with a Protestant pastor once, who was very well educated, because sometimes he's talked with Protestant pastors who are not. Uh, it's just like Catholics, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, talking with a Protestant pastor who's well educated was a beautiful conversation. Uh, and that was very nice. We, had, we sat next to each other in the airplane for three or four hours. And we're going back and forth and having a nice dialogue about scripture. And we were talking about how, do, we're asking each other, how do you understand this passage? How do you understand that passage? And it wasn't a debate. It was just a conversation. When I, I don't do well on debates myself because I get all fiery. And I don't keep my calm. <laughs> so I try not to debate. But I love to dialogue with people. And he had a great explanation for everything that we went through, through his vision. The way, the way that he saw things. The one passage he had trouble understanding is from St. Paul, and I'm trying to remember, I think it's Colossians, um, where he says, I complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It's very hard for the Protestant understanding to grasp how Mary could be co-redemptrix, how she completes what is lacking what is lacking in the suffering of Christ? Nothing. So how can she complete it? She allowed the redemption to take place in her heart. It's not in the sense like Jesus was not God and he was not perfect and his redemption was not perfect. We mean that. It is perfect. But where, so the vertical aspect of the cross is complete. But the horizontal the extension into the hearts of humanity and the allowing Simon of Cyrene to carry it with him, that's not complete. And no one did it like Mary. Mary is the model of it. And so we can even speak about the merits that Mary merited by standing at the foot of the cross, being far greater than probably all the saints combined. 
the merits that Mary merited at the cross. And her role in the redemption was explicitly willed by God. So much so that we give her the title in the church of co-redemptrix. Co-redemptrix. And you find that. Where do you find that in our art that we've seen so far? If you just look at the miraculous medal, you have at least two very strong symbols of this. One, she crushes the head of the snake. Co-redemptrix. Two, on the back of the miraculous medal, you find the cross intertwined with the M. That she participates in it. So you find a lot that's there. In in that medal, you're also going to find how she is mediatrix. Remember how you find that? Where does it show it in the medal? Her hands. Her hands giving forth light. You're going to find also coedemtrix, mediatrix, and advocate. That she's an advocate. You find that in her queenship, which is the crown. The crown around it. The 12 stars that are on the back. The 12 stars. Another really beautiful symbol of that, of how she's co-redemptrix, is you find also the two hearts. The, what do you call it? Sacred heart of Jesus. And the immaculate heart of Mary. Now, if you have the medal, look at it. Because how does the immaculate heart of Mary look? How is it symbolized? How do we symbolize the Immaculate Heart of Mary? The sword piercing it. It's interesting. Why do we symbolize the Immaculate Heart of Mary with a sword piercing it? Because her heart was pierced. That's one way. But notice we don't call it the Suffering Heart of Mary. Why do we call it the Immaculate? It's the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And there's a connection. Because you, would think that, you would think that because Mary was Immaculate, she didn't suffer that much. You would, because she was able to remain firm. She wasn't tempted, right? She was able to remain firm and not tempted. But the funny part about it is that because she was immaculate, we could say she suffered much more than we would ever imagine. Imagine, imagine like, for example, you, uh, someone steps on your toe really hard. Okay? Uh, what do you do? You go, ow! Usually. Okay? And then you can grit your teeth. How, how, do you normally, how do we normally cope with suffering? We think of something else. <laughs> we daydream. We, uh, if we get distracted, it really helps. It really helps. If it's so strong we can't get distracted, uh, we just go into some state of like vegetation. You know? Um, all of that we would, con- we would attribute to our impurity. The Immaculate Conception means that She was always attentive. She never stopped being present and never stopped loving. So when her heart was broke by watching her son suffer, she didn't turn away. She didn't uh, say, it hurts too much. I'm not going to look at this anymore. She felt it even more. She felt it even more than we could even imagine. Because of her immaculate conception. We know that her emotions were not like, I don't feel anything. 
Because of the Immaculate Conception, we know that her emotions felt even more, is usually what we would say. The purer you are, the more you feel, but you feel correctly. You don't feel like weirdly. It's like we have emotions that go all over the place. You know? Her emotions didn't go all over the place. She felt what she should have felt, which was death in her soul. A sword piercing straight through her soul. She never, did, she never went off into her imagination and daydreamed about something else. She stood and felt the pain because she didn't want to leave her son. So she didn't just not leave her son by walking away from the cross. She didn't leave her son in her own heart. In her own heart, she remained firm. In her own mind, she remained firm. And there's something that is really important. That's to see the incredible depth and quality of the soul means that even at the cross, her immaculate conception was present. It's immaculate heart that is able to suffer. The more I sin, the more numb I become. Is another way of saying the same thing. The purer I am, the more I feel. That's why the closer you get to God, the more you see you sin. If you don't, can't think of anything to confess, it's usually because you are uh, not sensitive. Yeah, usually. I mean, you could have small things, and so you know you're not supposed to go to confession for small things, but once a week at the most. So you don't go every day, unless it's something that we would call a mortal sin. Uh, you go once a week at the most. That's what John Paul II did. Uh, but you can go every day for mortal. But if you're, but the more that you sin, the farther you get away from confession, the more you don't feel all the little ones. It's like, how do you tell? How can you tell if there are shadows in you, if there is no light? You don't even realize that you're creating shadows, because everything is in the dark, anyways. And the more you're in the light, the more you can see the distinction between shadow and light. Similarly, Our Lady, uh, the, because of her Immaculate Conception, stood firm at the cross, yes, but also felt the cross. And a sword pierces her heart. The Immaculate Conception is a key to understanding how she is the spouse of the Spirit, meaning sensitive to whatever the Holy Spirit wants and doing whatever the Holy Spirit wants and allowing the Holy Spirit to bear fruit within her. How she is, the Immaculate Conception is also how she is the tabernacle, the pure vessel that wasn't just like the banana peel that some people would like to say. It's like the banana peel, you throw out the banana peel and have the banana. You have Jesus and not, not Mary. Uh, But she is rather, like in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, which was paraded around and kept as the treasure. And upon the Ark of the Covenant, God came to dwell. It was this box. But she is also the daughter of the Father. She always was aware of God looking upon her and loving her. And so hopefully that helps a little bit to enter into the mystery of Mary. Um, And let us move forward.
Let us go forward and love her. Never be afraid to love Mary. Um, at the end of this year, in our parish, and if you're not part of our parish, come and join us anyways. Don't join the parish. You can stay in your own. Stay in your own. But come and join us for this. At the end of this year, we're going to do a consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And if you've already consecrated yourself for the 33 days with Louis Gunion de Montfort, then do it again. <laughs> no problem. Um, and uh, we, I want to consecrate the whole parish and do a large Marian procession on the day of the Immaculate Conception, and on the 8th of December. And so if you can all join in that 33-day preparation and, and everything for Our Lady, I think it, it'll be a high moment. I want to kind of begin my time as pastor of the parish with the Immaculate Conception um, and the consecration of Blessed Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.